Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, October 19th, 2010. The hell debate draweth nigh. Yeah, I sound so educated when I use the King James, don't I? Oops. Yeah, too bad. Yeah, anyway. Ugh. Yeah, that's in. Yeah, I gotta talk about that. Making last second changes here. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Apparently, uh, uh, there's a lot of folks out there blaming the Holy Spirit for all this new stuff that's uh, uh, befallen the uh, Christian church. I mean, and and to challenge the new teachings, to ta- to challenge the new thoughts, is to well, you know, be you know, not you're you're not in 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 step with the the new thing that the Holy Spirit is doing. Well, keep this in mind: the the Holy Spirit. Um, we're talking about God the third person of the Holy Trinity. I mean, the one true God. And what God the Holy Spirit has revealed about one of the characteristic uh, natures of God, if you would, is that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That being the case, um, God the Holy Spirit would never reveal something new today that contradicted something uh, that he said of old. For instance, okay, uh, let, let's just go with something that probably is not nearly as controversial as other subjects, although what I'm about to say may be controversial. I I don't know anymore. I mean, you can't assume anything in the church today because, yeah, if you assume that people actually believe the, the scriptures, <laughs> you could be dramatically wrong. But <clears throat> let's just kind of work backwards through... Uh, history here. And uh, remember that whole incident on Mount Sinai and thinking, well, which one, Chris? Well, you know, Moses ascending uh, Mount Sinai, and he's got a couple of stone tablets with him, and God literally writes down the, these Ten Commandments and uh, and uh, reveals to the children of Israel. Now, now, I understand that when we understand the Ten Commandments story, that there's kind of like a misfire. You know, there's a false start involved um, yeah, false start, a football term. You know, I, you know, I gotta tell you, I, this, my second year living in Indianapolis, 
It's nice having a football team. But anyway, I digress. Anyway, uh, so I, I'm learning about false starts and offsides and and unnecessary roughness and all of those wonderful holding and, you know, things like that. Anyway, so I understand that it, it, with the, the whole Ten Commandments story that there was a false start. Um uh, while Moses was receiving these from God, he had spent you know he spent a little bit of time up there on the top of the mountain in the presence of the Lord, and uh, and well, the children of Israel decided that um, they didn't know what happened to Moses, and so they decided to worship God. They yeah, that's right. They decided to worship Yahweh uh, any way they saw fit, and so you know that that brought in the whole golden calf incident. Uh, and uh, they were worshiping in the uh, the practices of the nations around them that they you know that they saw the Egyptians do. And by the way, uh, Egyptian worship kind of involved sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And uh, nothing seems to have changed today, but uh, that's pretty much w- what was going on. And uh, so we got the whole Ten Commandments the other day. He broke the tablets, and then, but God rewrote them on a, on a fresh set. And um, and so in one of those commandments, uh, the there's several that we can go with, but uh, let's go with one that I don't think is controversial. Are you ready? God the Holy Spirit said, thou shalt not steal. Right. So if um, if a prophet were to arise today and say, you know, God is doing a new thing. Yeah, and he's speaking to me, and he's he's given me a vision uh, for fulfilling my destiny and my dreams here on planet Earth. And along with that comes some new information from God the Holy Spirit. And uh, you've heard it said in the past, thou shalt not steal. But now God the Holy Spirit, in this new thing that he is doing, says, go ahead and uh, take your handguns and uh, visit the local 7-Eleven and make that guy give you uh, whatever's in the cash register because God is no longer in favor of capitalism and uh, he's judging it, so he wants you to go out and he wants you to steal. To which you would say, huh? Um, uh, Are you sure that you heard that from, you know, the God of the Bible? I mean... You, you sure that wasn't just a piece of undigested beef giving you some weird, um, you know, uh, ecstatic experience? Uh, it, it really, you want us to believe that in the new thing that God's doing, that um, that uh, God wants us to um, steal. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. See, that's one of the ways in which you know um, uh, that uh, there's a false prophet among you. And so... In fact, you know, and now that I'm thinking about it, let's see. Is it Deuteronomy 13? I'm doing this from memory. Hang on a second here. Yeah, here it is. If you have your Bible, flip on over to um, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 13. That's right, Deuteronomy chapter 13. And remember that the white zone is for loading and unloading of passengers only. No parking. Anyway, um, here's what God, the Holy Spirit, revealed. At least one of the things that He revealed regarding false prophets. <laughs> Are you ready? Here we go. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 1. I read, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder. Let me read. I know that's not a full sentence, but let me read that half sentence again. 
if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, dreamer of dreams, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, this is what God, the Holy Spirit, revealed that uh, you know th- uh, this is a person who's a false prophet. Th- these are one ways that you can tell it's a false prophet. But look how God, the Holy Spirit, told us to look out for these folks. Somebody who claims to be a prophet or a dreamer of dreams. Isn't that what uh, all these vision-casting pastors claim to be? They have a dream? They have a vision from God? They and they they want you they want you to fulfill your the, okay so uh, God the Holy Spirit has revealed when we're dealing with false prophets that one of the d- ways th- that he described them is dreamer of dreams so if a prophet or or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and he gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass okay. So a dreamer of dreams tells you a sign or wonder, and it comes to pass. Now, let me translate this into today's um, modern parlance, okay? Um, let's say there's a dreamer of dreams who says that he's got a vision from God as to new the new thing that God is doing, and he wants your church to plug into the new thing that God is giving uh, doing, and he promises that if you plug into this new thing that God is giving that that God is doing, that God will give your church exponential growth. That's right. You can you can go from being a zero to a hero, and all you have to do is tap into the new dreamer vision uh, that reveals the new thing that God is doing. And the person taps into the new thing that God is supposedly doing, and wouldn't you know it, there's miraculous growth in that particular church. Wouldn't that, Isn't that exactly how uh, these seeker-driven guys hold out church growth? They, I mean, first of all, before you're qualified to ever speak at a seeker-driven conference, you must first have demonstrated that the Holy Spirit is working in your church by the sign or wonder known as exponential church growth. Yeah, and see, if you, have, if you don't have that, then, well, you, you can't speak at a seeker-driven conference. Because that's reserved for only the people who've experienced that particular miraculous sign or wonder. Okay, So let me read this again. If, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. It doesn't say doesn't come to pass. It says comes to pass. And he says, let's go after other Gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of the prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all of your soul. Now, let me contextualize this for today. This is a new technique that I've learned from Ed Stetzer. Uh, Let me contextualize this. So uh, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, if a vision caster arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder telling you that God has blessed his vision by giving him an exponential growth and uh, says that he can give you exponential growth and that sign or wonder comes to pass and you experience exponential growth and that vision caster tells you, 
let's practice deeds and not creeds, and what you believe and teach and confess and sound doctrine, well, that doesn't matter. Worship God any way you please and believe anything you want about him. Then you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer of dreams. It's the same thing. False doctrine is a form of idolatry. It's a chasing after a different God. Remember that thing I did, uh, was it last week, talking about the Build-A-God store? Listen, idolatry and chasing after false gods comes in many different forms. In today's really subtle form that the devil has created is the Build-A-God. You know, the you go to the Build-A-God store and, you know, you say, I, I'd like a God that has these particular features. He's he's uh, homo-affirming. He uh, doesn't have a problem with uh, false doctrine. He's eco-friendly. And uh, he's he, he really affirms spiritual but not religious. Oh, okay, we can yeah. You know, they so you b- build that god, and then you ask, what do you want? To, what do you want to name your god? Oh, well, we'll name him Jesus, right? Okay, everybody names their god Jesus, by the way. And the problem is, is that that's not the real Jesus. That's a false god. You have to see it for what it is. So when a vision caster arises among you and gets, claims that his exponential growth is a sign or wonder from God, and he's teaching you false doctrine regarding God, twisting the Bible and making it say things that it don't say, and isn't pointing you to Christ and him crucified for your sins, that is a false vision caster. That is a false dreamer of dreams. But see, that's the thing. When somebody claims to be a vision caster, claims that 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 they ha- that they are fulfilling the, God's dream in the world under uh, by what Deuteronomy 13 teaches that person is a false prophet they go by different names i claim to be the prophet so and so we got to listen to a- apostle uh, so and so yeah you, you got to listen to uh you know, such and such church growth guru because he is tapped into the new dream and vision that God has for the church. All of these people are claiming special and direct revelation from God that you have to go to them in order to find out the thing that God is doing. Well, uh, yeah, whenever that happens, well, we got a problem. And and that is, is that sound doctrine belongs to the whole church. The scriptures belong to the whole church. Yeah, you don't have to come to me to get sound doctrine. Yeah, if, and as far as like special revelations from God, see, I ain't got any. Yeah, no, none. Um, I can tell you what God has revealed. Yeah, read the word. Yeah, sound doctrine according to what the scriptures, what God has already revealed. And that's exactly what God the Holy Spirit was getting at. So if you got somebody rising up today, Basically, claiming to be a vision caster, claiming to be a dreamer of dreams. You know, think of Patricia King crowd, many in the seeker-driven, uh, uh, purpose-driven uh, church movements. They're all in the same category. Uh, they they've got new special revelation, and, and and what do they do? They they usually trash uh, what you know what the Bible says in, in one way or another. They impugn it. You know the emergence. Well, they say, oh, that Apostle Paul. That's just what he said. But the Apostle Paul's teaching is different from Jesus, and we need to tap into what the Spirit is doing now. Well, how am I, how am I supposed to figure that out? I mean, if if I mean that would assume that somehow intuitively I know what the Spirit's supposed to be doing. 
Um, but uh, being that I don't trust myself one bit, um, I, I need something objective that I can hang my hat on. And so uh, y'all familiar with um, how the uh, the financial markets work sometimes? You have, if you have somebody who's a stockbroker or a, a financial portfolio manager or whatever, and they, and they got commercials and they, and they say things like past performance is not an indicator of future performance, you know, things like that. Um, you know, but when it comes to God, the Holy Spirit, you know, here's the deal. What God, the Holy Spirit has done in the past and what he's revealed about himself is a very good indicator of how we can tell what God, the Holy Spirit's doing in the present. Okay. So if you're really, really deeply grounded in the word of God, you have, you, you got a pretty decent compass that'll help you uh, figure out what God is is doing right now because you'll know what to look for because he's revealed in his word what to look for. Yeah. So you look for where the gospel is preached. You look for where the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. Um, God, the Holy Spirit, uh, based upon, well, what we've learned in the, uh, in the scriptures isn't into, into, um, destiny or, fulfilling your dreams or um, vision casting and all that kind of stuff. In fact, all of those are kind of foreign concepts. And he's all about sound doctrine and preaching Christ, preaching Christ, pointing us to Christ and convicting people of their sin and unbelief so that they can be forgiven through Christ. That's, you know, that's something I've noticed about God, the Holy Spirit in the, uh, in the scriptures. So yeah, you, you gotta, you gotta pay close attention to what folks be saying because there's a lot of folks out there who claim to have some kind of an inside track with God. Yeah, they've, you know, they've, they're getting the special revelation. You know, the, you know, you've got your ordinary, well, grassroots kind of subpar pastors out there who, well, they depend upon, you know, the written word. Oh, Tag me with a spoon. But then these other guys, ooh, these super, super prophets, these vision casters, these dreamers of dreams, they claim to have the inside track. Yeah, why go to a pastor who only has the Bible when these guys, they've got the hotline to God, you know, sitting on their desk. Yeah, they got the little red phone going on there. Oh, maybe it's a white phone. I think the red phone goes to the other place or to Washington, D.C., those are the same place anyway. Anyway, so, uh, you know, but they got the white phone sitting on their desk and, you know, and every now and then, you know, it it, it, it rings, you know, and it's, it's got that heavenly angelic ring to it. And they pick it up and they go, hello, God. Yeah, thanks for calling, God. You got some new information for me? Thanks, God. This is an exclusive. I'm the only one who has it. Oh, thank you, God. I'm so glad that I have an exclusive on this information. I'll be sure to let everybody know for a price. <laughs> Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. always, yeah, listen, get into the Word, read the Scriptures, know the Scriptures, learn to see Christ in all the pages of the Scriptures for you, look at what God has done on your behalf, Look, I mean, and look at the miraculous way that God has intervened in human history, calling a people to himself to protect the line of the Messiah that he promised all the way back at the beginning when Adam and Eve sinned. And look at how, look at how much God has gone out of his way to save you. Yeah. It's not about your big dream for your life or vision casting or any of that kind of stuff. It's about Christ. And him crucified for our sins. 
All right, we're going to move along here. You know, monologue went a little long today. I, I'm, I'm doing that. I, uh, lots of things on my mind. Hell, the hell debate's coming up on Saturday. If uh, you're anywhere near Newburgh, Oregon, uh, yeah, I'm flying into Portland on Thursday. But if you're anywhere near Newburgh, Oregon on uh, this coming Saturday, then uh, invite you out to the, uh, the uh, you know, the Newburgh uh, conference that they're having there at Newburgh Christian Church, and uh, it, it's um, I'm going to be debating Doug Padgett on the doctrine of hell. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, everyone says that you know dealing with the emergent church is like nailing Jello to the wall. I'm hoping I have some kind of a freeze ray to solidify the Jello before I stick the nail in it. That that that's my hope. Anyway, <laughs> today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Um, yeah, I, I got a little bit of news I want to talk about. Um, I, and then I, I want to do a segment here and here's the question I have, um, for this, uh, video segment. I were listening to audio from a video, uh, from Alan Hirsch from the Verge, the newly, uh, e- erected Verge network.org website. Uh, the, these are the folks who put together the exponential conference. And uh, Alan Hirsch is uh, supposedly some kind of missiologist in the, you know, in the Ed Stetzer type mold or whatever. Um, you know, he's got the hipster thing going on. And um, they, uh, the Verge uh, Network.org website that recently went live has video of Alan Hirsch talking about uh, the DNA of gospel movements. And, and my question is, is like, are we just totally like overthinking this? Um, yeah. yeah. One of the things I remember back when I worked in corporate America is is that I had to sit through many, 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 many meetings and, and uh, you know conference table conversations with outside vendors who claim to have the latest and greatest technology and approach to streamlining our business and and turning it into you know whatever the latest greatest thing that you know they're supposed to turn your business into and um, one of the things I did is I got into the habit of of writing notes in Greek. Uh, if um, the person uh, that was doing the presentation was engaging in subterfuge, yeah, I've I've become very adept at spotting subterfuge, and I'm thinking this Alan Hirsch thing, yeah, it, it may potentially be that. So I want you to listen to part of that, and then uh, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Um, yeah, you know, what was it? Last Wednesday that we we entered the uh, the tribulation period according according to uh, William Tapley, the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Well, you know, I I sent him a message, you know, asking him, you know, uh, can you give us some proof from the headlines that we're actually in the tribulation? And uh, he he said to you know pay close attention to his new video. And well, wouldn't you know it? He just posted it, and uh, so we'll be um, listening to. The latest from William Tapley, kind of explaining uh, why World War Three and the tribulation seems to have been well, it, and well, for all intents and purposes, it seems like it's been postponed. You know, uh, like there's been a delay a game or something like that. So we got that we're doing today, and then uh, for our sermon uh, review today, uh, we're going to be listening to um, uh, Ken Jones of the White Horse Inn talking about the sufficiency of Scripture uh, as it pertains to uh, doctrine in life, and so. Uh, that'll be our that'll round out our program today, and so make yourself comfortable. Lots of th- lots of things still uh, yet to do, and uh, so with that, uh, let me uh, cue up the uh, the vintage news music, and we'll. 
from the Orange County Register. Headline reads, Crystal Cathedral declares bankruptcy. Now, for those of you who are thinking that uh, by saying that the Crystal Cathedral has declared bankruptcy, that that somehow means that uh, the bank uh, that uh, it's the kind of bankruptcy where you know the Crystal Cathedral is going liquid, to liquidate all of its assets and all. no 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 they've declared Chapter Eleven. This is in order to reorganize their debt. And so uh, I got I got audio from a video posted by the Orange County Register there in Orange County, and uh, I want you to listen to this and uh, I'll kind of explain what's going on here. As the uh, the folks who are uh, responsible for the um, well, uh, the the managing Schulers, I guess is probably the right way of putting it, um, discuss uh, you know their plans to reorganize their debt and and emerge like a phoenix from the uh, from the ashes of their current. Chapter 11 bankruptcy. So here we go. A couple of years from now was the Christa Cathedral is a church that runs by faith and walks by faith. And that's the story that will be written at the end of this chapter when we emerge. The Crystal. That was uh, the, the, the executive producer of the Hour of Power. Cathedral in Garden Grove filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy Monday morning. We lost about 30% of our revenue just because people couldn't give like they used to be able to give. The church owes $7.5 million to outside vendors as of Monday and also has a mortgage of $36 million. This past April, we got together with the vendors and they agreed to a moratorium where we would work with them on figuring out to do a repayment plan because we don't have $7.5 million in the bank to give them. And we want to pay our vendors back. Several creditors decided not to extend a moratorium to allow continued discussions on payment plans. Most of the creditors were wonderful and wanted to work with us. There were a few who didn't want to play ball. They wanted to jump the line and try to get ahead of everybody else and do whatever they could. So they went after writs of attachment where they could attach our bank account and try to get all of their money back right away and get ahead of all the other creditors. The Crystal Cathedral Ministry says it will continue operating. We're paying cash for things as we go now. The church was forced to lay off 140 of its staff as it had to cut its costs. The school will be con- continue to be held here. Our television services will continue to be aired. And our Sunday morning services are, are continuing here. If anything, our message and our ministry has that much more meaning now. now we have- Notice that <laughs> a typical Schuler-esque type of theology. Let's put the best construction on this. And, you know, let's, let's, let's uh, talk about Chapter 11 in a way that builds people's self-esteem up. I'm an all-volunteer choir now, mm-hmm. and we used to have quite a few paid singers in mm-hmm. there, and, and people in our congregation have stepped up, and they're volunteering their services to be in the choir. It also slashed the Hour of Power broadcast. We used to be on um, two cable networks, TBN and Lifetime, as well as syndicated broadcast. Yeah, now listen, they're going to they're gonna cut all this back, but it's a good thing and uh, in different cities around the, the country. And so what we did was we did some analysis and we realized that we can reach 90% of America through lifetime alone. The glory of Easter pageant was canceled this year, but the ministry hopes to have the glory of Christmas. With each and every passing day, uh, that becomes less and less likely. The church has no plans to close its doors. We want our people to know that the, this church it will still be here. Our concern is that people will hear this and think, oh, this is, they're closing their doors, and nothing could be further from the truth. Mark Eads reporting for OCRegister.com. So there you go. Uh, they've declared Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And, you know, what's going on? Do they blame this on the fact that, well, there's been a 30% drop in in giving, and um, 
the last time – did the U.S. economy tank by 30 percent? You know, I just, I'm just wondering because maybe the 30 percent drop is more along the lines of, well, the Crystal Cathedral may be not relevant anymore. Yeah, um, you, you got to remember, relevance is, well, she's a fickle mistress. That relevance, I tell you, you know, one day she'll make you feel like the king of the world. <laughs> Next thing you know, she's got her eye on somebody else that's more hip and now than you are because you were only hip and now yesterday. She's looking for the guy who's hip and now today, yeah, which kind of leads to the question I have. Um, um. As I've been listening to the um, the Decade of Destiny sermons uh, over there at Saddleback, um, you know, when, when Rick Warren kicked off the Decade of Destiny sermon series, I mean, he kicked it off by telling everybody how he wants everybody at Saddleback to have the next 10 years of their life be the best. And, you know, and that God wants to bless them. And, um but he can't, you know, unless you meet the conditions, unless you make yourself blessable, you know, which kind of sounds like a light version of the uh, prosperity gospel. And uh, it's it's so overt in its in its promises regarding temporal blessings. It just makes you wonder um, if maybe um, Saddleback is starting to feel some financial pressure. You know, I know what we're talking here about, you know, the Crystal Cathedral, but, yeah, the Crystal Cathedral, I mean, that was cutting edge, hip and relevant, you know, what, in the 70s and 80s? And then, you know, then along came along, you know, Saddleback and Rick Warren and, you know, and, you know, Saddleback was like cutting edge, hip and relevant, you know, what, 90s and early 2000s? But, I mean, here we are, it's it's 2010, Come on, you think Saddleback is relevant anymore? Really? I mean, they're they're going multi-site, you know, um, in order to kind of you know reach areas where they haven't reached before. But um, I, I mean, it, it makes I mean, with Rick Warren basically overtly promising people temporal blessings um, if they're obedient to God. I uh, I mean it just makes you wonder. I mean, just makes you wonder if maybe they're, you know, feeling a financial pinch over there and, and they've got to uh well, you know, scratch some itching ears and give people uh, you know, uh, more overtly, you know, you promise them more temporal blessings so that they'll, you know, <clears throat> pony up and uh, tithe so that they can make their some make themselves blessable. Just you know, just I'm wondering, but enough about Saddleback. I mean, sorry, we were talking about the Crystal Cathedral declaring Chapter Eleven bankruptcy, which kind of you know one of the things I observed though about that particular news conference was it me or did you all notice that? Uh, I mean that I mean they, they were they sounded like they were declaring good news. You know, it, listen, Chapter Eleven, it's just an opportunity. You know, we don't want to hurt anyone's self esteem. <clears throat> and so you know, I I I think that this particular song might actually um be appropriate for the for what we just heard from the folks over there at the Crystal Cathedral. Um you know what they say? What do they say, Patsy? Some things in life are bad. They can really make you mad. Other things just make you swear and curse. You know, like chapter 11. When you're chewing on life's grizzle, don't grumble. 
Give a whistle. That's right. And this will help things turn out for the best. Oh. And always look on the bright side of life. That's right. When life oh, serves you lemons, you need to make lemonade. You give it a try. Oh, you know, Chapter 11, it doesn't mean that we're done. It just means that we have a new opportunity. I mean, what a great thing. We got people who are now volunteering, and we could we don't even have to pay them. Isn't that great? We're going to be a stronger and more positive Crystal Cathedral thanks to this Chapter 11. Oh, yeah. Life is quite absurd, and death's the final word. You must always face the curtain with a bow. Forget about your sin, give the audience a grin. Enjoy it, it's your last chance anyhow. Always look on the bright side of death. That's right, you may be on death's doorstep, but put a positive spin on it. Just before you draw your terminal breath. (laughs) (sighs) That's right. How does the Crystal Cathedral declare bankruptcy? With a stiff upper lip and a positive outlook. That's the way to do it. Praise the Lord for such positive and self-esteem building chapter 11-ness. Oh, what a fine example that the Crystal Cathedral has given us by just looking on the bright side of this dark cloud that has overcome them. (sighs) We're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. It's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Let's face it. It's a visual age, and the old Bible is impractical and irrelevant, but that shouldn't hamper your spiritual growth. If you're tired of all those words like atonement, sin, justification, and all that deep stuff about God, look no further. Announcing the Massage, a new Bible version that puts you and your personal needs central. 
Written in a style familiar to readers of the National Enquirer, the massage concentrates on making you feel good rather than filling your head with all those doctrines that clutter the older Bibles and disrupt unity. So if you've lost that loving feeling, pick up your copy of the massage today. It's available at your local Jesus and Me stores and at airport terminals worldwide. your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, always looking on the bright side of life is not the gospel. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world, you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to partner with us with, that's right, it's a partnership. Uh, then you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Just a heads up, if you uh, follow me on Facebook and Twitter, then you saw that today I sent out a message uh, basically asking for your prayers. It has come to my attention, uh, some good friends of mine have emailed me, to let me know that Bob DeWay of Twin City Fellowships there in Minneapolis, Minnesota, is uh, is in really, truly poor health. And uh, the, the uh, Bob DeWay's family and, and friends are very concerned uh, because the prognosis at the moment, it doesn't look good. And so if you could keep Pastor Bob DeWay and his family in Twin City Fellowship in your prayers... Um, they would greatly appreciate that, and uh, I, 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 the, the thought of losing Bob away is not a good thought. I mean, he is a tremendous uh, soldier of the cross and a, a very important voice in today's battle for the truth in the Christian Church today. And um, we, I, I, the, the thought of losing him is not a is not a good thought. So uh, I know he's weary and I know he's tired, but let's pray that uh, the Lord would grant him. Um, 
healing and reprieve from whatever it is that ails him. And uh, we'll trust that that's the case. Okay, moving along. Um, boy, I think let's talk about William Tapley. Um, um, I've come up with the uh, uh, with a uh, appropriate uh, music for um, well, since we're supposedly in the tribulation, according to William Tapley, the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. I've got some perfect music that I think would be you know for, to use in the future and and starting today whenever discussing William Tapley and uh, his uh, doom and gloom scenarios for uh, the end of the world. And let's see if you agree. <laughs> I think that's just <laughs> I don't know what to think of this guy anymore. I I think he's one taco short of a combo plate. But uh you know, remember last week uh, we got a red alert from the third eagle of the apocalypse basically letting us know that the tribulation began on October 13th and so I uh, I sent an email uh, a message off to uh, William Tapley third eagle of the apocalypse asking us asking him if he could help us see proof uh, from the headlines that uh, that we are currently in the um, tribulation. And, um, well, he said to watch his next video, and wouldn't you know it, he posted it shortly thereafter. Uh, here, Here's um, the third eagle of the apocalypse. Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the third eagle of the apocalypse and the co-prophet of the end times. You know, it makes me wonder, uh, who who does he think he's co-profiting with? This is my first update since my last video where I announced that the seven years of tribulation would begin on October 13th. I also suggested... In now, those of you who can't see this video, I need to point something out. Even though we're apparently in the tribulation, William Tapley is not wearing camouflage, and nor do I see him wearing a flak jacket. So... Um, he has decided not to don any military garb, you know, even though we're in the tribulation. Uh, and by, you know, which makes you wonder, I mean, if, if you know, if the whole rap, this whole rapture theology that he has, I don't even know how to reconcile it with Roman Catholicism. But I, the, the one thing I do know is that if you find that uh, that everybody else has been raptured and you haven't, grab your rosary and head out to the desert uh, with the Catholics and pray the rosary so that you can make it through the tribulation. And program that World War III could begin on that same date also. World War III will occur at the beginning of the tribulation period. However, I also noted that Jesus could shorten those days. Yeah, you, you did say that. As he promised. 
And I believe that prophecy was also fulfilled this past week because an amazing event occurred which was totally unreported in our media. And that is that a missile site in Iran blew up, which housed most of their ballistic missiles, all of which were aimed at Israel. Normally, this would be a tremendous front-page story. There was a total media blackout of the story. I was only able to find one place where this was reported, and that is on the Debka file website. Now, as I read this story, I want you to ask yourself, how is it possible that this story was completely blacked out in our American news media? Yeah, I, I'm asking the same question. I mean, a top secret Iranian military installation was struck by a triple blast Tuesday, October 12th, the day before Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad arrived in Lebanon. Debka Files military and intelligence sources report the site held most of the Shihab-3 medium-range missile launchers. Iran had stocked for striking U.S. forces in Iraq and Israel in the event of war, some said to deliver triple warheads. The 18 soldiers officially reported killed in the blasts and 14 injured belonged to the Revolutionary Guard's main missile arm, the Al-Hadid Brigades. Now, he that's something he's reading from a website called the Debka Files. I no idea what that is. 18 people killed anywhere in the world would be newsworthy. But these were Iranian Revolutionary Guards. They were killed at a top-secret missile base. And the news media does not consider this important? Well, he does. How can this possibly be? All last week, they were talking about balloons released over New York City, which they called UFOs. How is it possible that that story took precedence over this one? Well, I'm sure you're going to answer the question. Please fill us in. And this story was completely censored. Our Iranian sources report... The Tehran spent hundreds of millions to build one of the largest subterranean missile launching facilities of its kind in the Middle East or Europe. Somehow, a mysterious hand rigged these blasts in quick succession. Deep inside those tunnels, destroying a large number of launchers, causing enough damage to render the facility unfit for use. In its official statement on the incident, Tehran denied it was the result of a terrorist attack and claimed the explosion was caused by a nearby fire that spread to the munitions storage area of this base. So the question is, what is this mysterious hand which rigged these three blasts in quick succession? Um, I, uh, you, you got me? I don't know. I'm stumped. So this Debka file reporter is suggesting that this was sabotage. That's what is meant by the mysterious hand. Iran, on the other hand, is suggesting that this was an accident. I am going to suggest that it was neither. I believe this was the hand of God. So God blew up the Iranian missile facility in uh, to fulfill the prophecy about shortening the days of the tribulation? Well, this is kind of a setback. I mean, if if I, from what I'm uh, gathering here, apparently that 
World War III was supposed to kick off with um, Iran firing these missiles, that, you know, maybe like Israel or something, and and on the 13th of October to, you know, begin the tribulation. Um, uh, I mean, should we wait until things are rebuilt, you know, kind of reset the table? Here? Oh, man. Actual fact, Debka Files military sources report Iran's missile arsenal and the Revolutionary Guards have also suffered a devastating blow. Worst of all, all their experts are at a loss to account for the assailants. Now notice assailants here. Debka File is still suggesting that this was some kind of sabotage by the Israelis. The assailants' ability to penetrate one of Iran's most closely guarded bases and reach deep underground to blow up the missile launchers. The soldiers' funerals took place Thursday, October 14th, at the same time as Ahmadinejad declared in South Lebanon that Israel was destined to disappear. A few hours later, he ended his contentious two-way visit to Lebanon. Now, Ahmadinejad made this prediction that Israel would disappear on the Israeli-Lebanese border. I do not believe this was an Israeli commando raid. I do not believe this was an accident. I believe this was a case of Jesus shortening the days. Makes perfect sense. Yeah, right on. Those missiles were supposed to be launched on October 13th. That would have precipitated World War III. See, and that would have, you know, proven that your date about starting the tribulation was right on. But thanks to your good sleuthing work on the Internet, now we have the explanation as to why October 13th was kind of like just like October 12th or October 11th. You know, same old, same old, no World War III. That is why Iranian President Ahmadinejad was at the Israeli border on October 13th. He was not there to announce the future destruction of Israel. Ahmadinejad was there to watch the destruction of Israel. But our Lord prevented the plans of Satan. Yay, Jesus! Way to go! And now I would like to give you my three reasons why I believe this. Please, I I can hardly wait. First of all was the amazing media blackout of this story. As you know, Satan controls the news media. I did not know that. Normally, any story about death and destruction is front-page news. Satan loves death and destruction. So why was the media quiet this time? Uh, Could it be Satan? The reason is because this was a huge defeat for Satan. Ah, yeah. And he controls the entire news media. Apparently, Satan doesn't control YouTube, though. That's good news. Satan had planned to start... World War III on October 13th. He was defeated. Jesus shortened the days of the tribulation. Right on. Way to go, Jesus. My second reason is the very interesting numerology. (laughs) What? Notice, according to this Debcophile story, there were three huge explosions. Three, of course, is the number of the Trinity. Oh, so there was one explosion for the Father, one explosion for the Son, and one explosion for the Holy Spirit. 
I missed that. Yeah. Thanks for pointing that out. And please note also, there were 18 Iranian Revolutionary Guards killed. Um, okay. 18 is the number of the Antichrist. <gasps> I, did, I didn't know that. Oh, man, I've been, I've studied, I have a degree in religious studies and biblical languages and a minor in history and an MBA from Pepperdine, and I did not know that the, the number of the Antichrist was 18. I, I thought it was 666. That is 6 plus 6 plus 6. And my oh, yeah. silly me. Oh, totally missed that. 18 is 6 plus 6 plus 6. Oh, yeah. You're a tricky one, you are, Mr. William Tapley. Where would we be without you? Third reason is the timing of this event. This explosion occurred October 12th, just hours before the planned start of World War III, October 13th, which was, of course, the start of the seven years of tribulation. And if you would like more information or a free copy of my book. No, no. <laughs> so there you have it. I call off the tribulation. Jesus is going to shorten it up for us. And uh, uh, where would we be without William Tapley and his prophetic insight? You know, that that third eagle, uh, co-prophet of the end times. I He just, he nothing gets by him. Nothing. Yeah, so there you have it. That's, you know, you, if you were wondering about, you know, where's, hey, you know, where's the tribulation? Why ain't it here yet? Well, now you know. So, there. All right, uh, moving along here. Um, the uh, folks over at the Exponential Conference I have uh, launched a brand new uh, website, vergenetwork.org, vergenetwork.org. And they got a series of videos uh, from uh, the missiologist Alan Hirsch. And uh, the question I have on the table right now that I'm going to be asking you all is, um, is this subterfuge? Are we making this evangelism church thing just like way too complicated? I mean, seriously, I mean... Just put it. Let me put it in a different way. If I were to be able to travel back in time, you know, you know, get my DeLorean and hit eighty-eight miles an hour, and poof, you know, then somehow drive across the Atlantic Ocean and the Mediterranean Sea, and 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 land somewhere in Palestine, uh, you know, maybe like forty, forty-five A.D. Um, would I? And I were to sit down with the Apostle Peter, and I were to talk about, you know, how is the church going? How are we going to grow the church? Um, is this the um, kind of answer that the Apostle Peter would give me? Uh, here, here, let, let, we'll see what you think. Uh, this is Alan Hirsch discussing the uh, DNA of gospel movements. And the reality is that we're not doing particularly well in the grand scheme of things. We're still in the decline in America. And the trend is downhill because it's exponential. Uh, growth is exponential in movements, but decline is also. It, it starts doubling up. So Barner can state that in 20 years we'll have 50% less church attendance. And whether he's right or wrong on that, it's certainly the trend is there. So the problem for us is that the best forms of church that we've got to address the situation can maybe reach into what I would say is in America probably 40% of the population. 
that is the current form of church, the contemporary church, and we are in a seeker-sensitive world, however you want to name that, can reach into a, a segment of the population that would be within the cultural orbit of that church. It's, I think, 40%. Let me just uh, summarize what he just said. He th- says that the seeker-driven church is like the best way of you know, you know, turning things around. No, it's not. It's the best way of ensuring that the gospel isn't preached. Uh, but then he says it's the best way to tra- But see, the seeker-driven churches, well, they can at best only reach 40% of the population. Yeah. But the problem is that most of our churches are geared towards that segment. So then you have 95%, maybe more of our churches trying to reach 40% of the population. Well, that's a problem. And here you have the situation is that you've got 60% of the rest of the population who not, that, that model ain't going to reach it. Because if it was, it would have done that already. <laughs> what about the 60%? Well, then you say, well, more of the same is not going to get the job done. But it's on the decline, folks. We're designed for advance, not defense. We're an advancing body. And I don't mean to be triumphalistic about it, but I think the gospel is the triumph of God and Jesus Christ. And we are meant to represent that. And the church is an advancing body. If we're not advancing, there's something we're doing as leaders as people who've got something in our hands to do. Because I think we can trust that Jesus has built in potentials in us that will create community, will create movements. We can trust that Jesus is building potentials within us? Okay, I have no idea what that sentence means. I, can somebody translate? Does anyone speak Hirsch out there? In advance. Uh, and again, movements understand that. They just connect with that that powerful transformative force, which is the gospel. And so they, the gospel is a power transformative force that uh, gives us potentials for movements. Out it goes. Yeah? Because I, actually, I do believe that, that uh, recovery of being movements again, I believe that actually recovery of that form will be part of the answer and a major part of the answer for the problem of the church in the West. Yeah, apostolic genius is made up of six elements hinting at the kind of DNA of the church as a movement. I saw it as a system, as this dynamic inter kind of relationship of various elements that came together that if one was removed from the equation, you don't go there, you don't go to exponential movement. Remember, that's what I'm trying to dig in here, is, is how do churches, church movements, grow exponentially. Okay, so the question is, how do church movements grow exponentially? And thanks to the keen... Um um, uh, church consultant eye of um, Alan Hirsch. He's he thinks he's un, he's uncovered the key to this. Okay, and so uh, here here's um, you have to have this integrated system of things. And so it, it, here's here's what it revolves around. First, you gotta you gotta understand that Jesus is Lord, and then in your church you have a disciple making component. You need a component that deals with the missional incarnational impulse. Um, the, you need to have an apostolic environment. You need to have organic systems and um, the uh, communitas, not community. Yeah, this is what's on the screen right now, and I'm looking at this going, huh? I feel like I'm being sold something. Remember I, earlier in the program, I, when I was in corporate America, I had to sit through many, many, many sales presentations by many, many different vendors who were offering us their individualized uh, 
selective, unique solutions for making our business streamlined and being able to cut our edge into the future of whatever so that we can experience exponential business growth. And um, yeah, I just feel like I'm being sold something here. And uh, whenever whenever somebody was trying to sell me something and I thought they were engaging in subterfuge, I would begin writing my notes during the meeting in Greek. Yeah, that was on purpose because, you know, I, I, I've learned uh, important phrases in Greek like um, this guy's product is scubalon. Is, you know, I'd write something like that in Greek or, yeah, this is absolute garbage. He doesn't know what he's talking about. This, he's, this is a pipe dream. He's selling us magic beans. These would be the types of messages I would write in Greek. And I thought if they, you know, if chances are that... Those uh, sales guys didn't know biblical Greek, and so they wouldn't know what I was actually writing. And then afterwards, my boss would say, uh, Roseboro, um, I've noticed that you're not writing in English anymore. Nope, I'm not. I've started writing in Greek. Why did you do that? Because that was, well, the guy's trying to sell us magic beans. I mean, seriously. This, what he said didn't make any sense, and I would go through my notes with him. And he'd say, yep. I'm, and so what, what happened after a few years, my boss, if, if we were in a sales meeting like that, and uh, he would always take a, you know, he would peek over at my notes. If I was writing in English, he would go, whew. And if I would start writing in Greek, he would kind of like roll his eyes and go, oh, no. <laughs> this is a bad sign. Roseboro's writing in Greek. Anyway, um, so uh, the, <clears throat> so uh, apparently Alan Hirsch is making the claim that he's discovered. He's, he, he's dull, you know, he put on his cosmic uh, church guru uh, peepers and has discovered the DNA of gospel movements. And I'm seeing this and just, you know, this is consultant speak. This is... Listen a little bit more. It's what uh, Roland Allen calls spontaneous expansion of the church. At the heart of the church and the heart of God's people is this innate capacity that God has built into the church. That is the com combination of these elements. And here's the theories. If one of them is missing, you don't go exponential. It doesn't matter which one you take out. All of the, all of them are needed to create exponential. Movement. Oh yeah, and, and I bet you anything he's got a book or some products that'll help you understand all the different components because he just made this claim. I mean, here's the deal: your church can't grow exponentially unless it's got all of those components, unless the entire DNA is there. And uh, well, and you're saying, oh, I want my church to grow exponentially. Oh, what am I going to do? Well, don't, <laughs> don't fret. Don't worry. Alan Hirsch has figured this all out for you. And I'm sure for a small price, you can learn about all these different important components that you need to have the DNA of a gospel movement occur inside of your missional community, also known as a church. Movement. So, you know, it's the actual irreducible minimum of what movements are made of in terms of the dynamic system. Okay, so overview of the six elements very quickly. So here are the six elements, and this is just an overview. Is that the centerpiece around which the others orbit is the Jesus' is Lord piece. So here you have is a worldview in a sentence. Actually, worldview in three words, which is quite remarkable. And that's why... Uh, we're supposed to proclaim a worldview? I thought we were supposed to proclaim the gospel. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Yeah, he might want to go back. He may have some corrupt DNA in his gospel movement's DNA package. It's kind of theologically dense enough to hold the movement together. So at the, that's the heart of it, is that centerpiece. 
The next one is discipleship and disciple making. That is, it's very close to Jesus Lord because this is how the individual believer lives out the Lordship of Christ in community. Discipleship and disciple making are foundational to any movement. No matter which movement you, you, you observe, you will find that they're obsessed pretty much with discipleship and disciple making. Everyone's a disciple and no one ever stops being a disciple. Then uh, the other one I, I go to is missional incarnational impulse. God is a mission. I don't even know what that, that, what does that phrase mean? Missional incarnational impulse. Missionary God, the church is a sent people. We see in Jesus the kind of model of mission. You go among a group of people, you speak from within them. If God is a sending God, this is how God sends. Missional incarnational go together. It's the outward and the deepening, outward deepening, outward deepening impulse that associates with movements. And, and here you actually see the sneeze being worked out. It's like the, it's, the what the sneeze being worked out. Did he say sneeze? It kind of it establishes itself and then it sneezes out. For, it, for the, the following he, he said sneeze, didn't he? He established itself and then it sneezes out. What I, I go to is the apostolic environment. If we're going to be a missional church and a missional movement, we have to have missional forms of ministry to go along with that. Ephesians 4 expresses that. I don't even know what that. What's a missional form of expressive ministry? What? That the church has got fivefold form. I'm writing in Greek. Apostolic, prophetic, evangelistic, pastoral, and didactical, the teaching role. And I think a lot of the frustration at the moment uh, in uh, missional church circles is everyone wants missional church, but they don't want missional ministry. Uh, I would say if you take. So everybody wants missional church, but no one wants missional ministry. Oh, what a bane. What does that mean? Take this out, you can't have movement. Then we got an organic system. You know what this reminds me of? Ed, do you all remember your first experience at Starbucks? Yeah. Um, I remember going to Starbucks the very first time and looking at their menu board and going, what? I, uh, I'd like to order some coffee, please. Well, would you like a venti grande or, a, you know, huh? Uh, what's a venti? Oh, that, that just means you're our, our really large size. Okay, so then grande is like your ne- no no uh, yeah, yeah yeah grande is like the next side and then tall is like small okay so you had to you had to kind of like wade through you had to learn a different language just to order coffee <laughs> oh, I I this is just absolute obfuscation why do I need to learn a different language you know when it comes to church at least I mean. The, where does the Bible talk about organic systems or about being a missional community with the, uh, any of this stuff? I mean, I feel like this guy is offering some kind of a Starbuckian church experience, you know. You know, And so what will happen, I, I remember a little bit off topic, but on topic, you know, an example of this. I <laughs> I remember back in the late, oh, man, this is, uh, no, it was probably 2001. Yeah, uh, 2001, I was at a uh, business conference and I was it was a conference that was held in Silicon Valley. And um and it, I forget what the conference was about, but it, it, it there was a pro, there was a part of the uh, the conference that had to do with solving business problems. So you would show up to the conference with the understanding that your that your business was experiencing some kind of a roadblock to its growth or whatever and you need to find a way to uh, solve that. And so um, it, what happened is, is that there was some business consultants that had a booth set up 
And so after this one person's presentation, they, they you know, they, they were some kind of a uh, of a of a business tune up kind of company that can help, you know, tune things up. So I thought, you know, I, I, I don't know if I, you know, I heard their presentation and went, I just don't know if they're able to help us or not. And I thought maybe I'm just stupid um, because I didn't, you know, I knew they were speaking English ish in their presentation, but I didn't. So anyway, I went and I, so they had a booth set up and there was probably about you know, half a dozen folks that were there who were, you know, you can, they can, you can ask them questions and then they can kind of, kind of figure out if whether or not they're able to help you or if they, if they have, you know, some immediate solution. And so I went to, there was a, it, the, the person who was available was a gal. And so I, I explained to her our particular business, you know, our thorny business problem at the time. I can't remember even what this problem was, but she, she looked at me and so she says, she goes, so what you're telling me is is that you you're you're you you need a rainmaker. And I I went, "Oh, a what?" Yeah, you 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 need a rainmaker. And I said, "What's a rainmaker? I don't need somebody to uh, you know go tribal on me and, and you know and beat a drum and make the you know make rain happen, you know, it was a sales issue. And it, it's it's like it's like what is what's a rainmaker? You know, and it was just really stupid. I mean, it was so avant-garde, and it's it sounded. It, it, I just remember there were they were talking this completely different language, and you know, no, I didn't need a rainmaker. I needed a salesperson who could produce some results. You know that. That's what I feel like I'm hearing in Alan Hirsch here. You know, yeah, if you want the DNA of a gospel movement, then you need uh, you got to have this organic uh, system set up uh, using an. Uh, um, uh, um, uh, you know, centered around the Jesus is Lord discipleship making missional incarnational impulse thing. And, uh, you know, and if you're missing any of this stuff and you don't have communitas in, 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 instead of community or uh, you, 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 if you don't have that, then, uh, you know, then you well the whole thing's going to go and, you know, it's just not going to work. And um, I it's like listening to Ozzy Osbourne try to, you know, string three words together and actually make a coherent sentence. It doesn't make any sense. He's selling me something that he's discovered. But he, here's the deal. Let's listen just a little bit more. Systems, organic systems has to do with the organizational structure uh, of movements. Movements that go spontaneous and exponential they have a very decentralized form. Power and function are distributed outwards. Every agent has got the capacity to reproduce the whole. And then we have communitas, which is the final piece. Communitas is a community formed in the context of an ordeal, a challenge, a, a task, a mission that requires each player to find each other in a new significant way to get the job done. I'm hearing words. I'm just, yeah. And see, what happens is, you know, I'm sure the folks at Exponential, and they play these videos, that you got all these pastors out there in the secret-driven movement just going, yeah, man, I'm totally hip on that. Did you hear what he said about communitas and not community? Oh, yeah, you know, because we need a rainmaker to get the DNA of the global thing going so that, you know, we can uh, center around the Jesus is Lord missional incarnational impulse, dude. <sighs> okay. Uh, are, we, are we just overcomplicating all of this? I mean, seriously. Okay. I'm currently in the process of teaching an evangelism course at the church that I'm a member of. 
And, uh, you know, at the, at the first meeting of our uh, of the evangelism course, you know, we had some people show up and, um, you know, I, I basically said, listen, here's the deal. Evangelism is about telling somebody Jesus died for their sins and trusting that God, the Holy Spirit will regenerate them, that God, the Holy Spirit will raise them from the dead and that there are certain roadblocks that get in the way of preaching the gospel and we'll we'll work our way through that but we're, you know but here's the deal the way you're going to learn evangelism is not by discussing it in theory we're going to learn evangelism by doing it yeah you know so i mean if i were to sit down with the folks in my evangelism class and sit here and talk about the dna of gospel movements and about you know having some kind of missional incarnational impulse they they probably leave there going what is wrong with Chris? What is, I mean, it, it, we need to drug screen him and make sure that there's not some kind of a narcotic problem going on here. Um, and so here's the deal. Okay. We've been given a gospel. We have a book. Okay. It's called the Bible and we have word. We have, we have word and we have sacraments. Yeah. It, plain and simple. Water, wine, bread, and a book. This is not tough. This is not difficult. Yeah, there's marks of the church. The gospel is clearly proclaimed. The sacraments are administered according to the gospel. The full counsel of the word of God is taught. And God, the Holy Spirit, raises dead sinners from the dead and gives them the Holy Spirit as a, as a, as a you know, basically a, a deposit guaranteeing their inheritance in the kingdom to come, and we're to proclaim the good news and call sinners to repentance and the forgiveness of sins, long gospel, sin, and grace. This is not hard. And this is what the church has been doing all along. Now, if I were to go back in time, you know, grab the DeLorean. I don't have a DeLorean, but, you know, grab a DeLorean, get to 88 miles an hour, and poof, you know, fly across time and space. to The, the apostle Peter would not be talking about the DNA of gospel movements. Peter would say, I, you know, listen, I don't know about any of that stuff, but let me tell you about this Jesus guy. I, you know, I was a fisherman minding my own business. He says, come follow me. I mean, I, I, I saw the most amazing things, and here's the good news. He's the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, and he died and was raised again on the third day. He's God in human flesh, and he's calling us to repent of our wickedness and be forgiven through him. That Peter wouldn't know anything about this DNA of gospel movements stuff. It just makes me think that... Um, these folks out there who claim to be missional uh, church consultant experts who somehow have figured out, you know, have read the tea leaves in the Bible and figure, and been able to distill all this down into its easy-to-understand components, that wasn't easy to understand at all. You want to know how to do evangelism? Preach the gospel to people. We're going to learn it by doing it, is what I told my evangelism class. We're going to learn this. Here's some basic stuff you got to keep in mind. You have to understand that people react differently to it. Now we're going to study what the gospel is and, and start talking about practical ways in which we can share it with other people. You know, I remember when I first was learning how to play golf. I stunk at it. I was terrible at it. I I don't play golf anymore, but... Uh, I don't have the money or the time. It, 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 golf is kind of a commitment. I, have y'all noticed that? Anyway, a different story. Anyway, I, I've, I've had you know time and money, two, two commodities I don't have a lot of at the moment. But anyway, when I was first learning how to play golf, you know, I, I was horrible at it. And uh, you know, I you know, I'd practice and I'd stink. I'd practice some more and play and I'd stink. 
And, you know, it was very frustrating, and, and there was a lot of stress involved in trying to improve my game and stuff like that. So, when, you know, you watch this video that tells you to keep your elbow down and your head not moving, and, and so when you get up to the ball, you got all these bizarre ideas walking, you know, running around in your head. i got to keep my head down. i got to keep my feet apart this far. i got to have them at this angle. i got to address the ball this way. I've got to keep this elbow down, this elbow up, swing back to this point. Then i got to cock it, and then i got to and then I got to release the energy and hold it. Well, actually, hold the energy to the and then release it and then follow through. And you got all these bizarre ideas running through your head. It's like, it's called a swing. I didn't start getting good at golf until I realized golf is not broken up, and you know the swing isn't about all these different steps. It's about swinging. It's about getting natural to the point where you don't even think about it. And I remember one time playing golf when I was first uh, learning to play, and uh, I, I went out and uh, I, you know, how, how long ago was this? I, uh, I forget what year it was. Anyway, I was out. You know, I'm 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 a young. I'm in I'm, I'm in my early 30s, and uh, you know, so this is like 10, 12 years ago. And uh, you know, my my uh, handicap at that point was like greater than like the minimum. You know, I think the minimum handicap uh, the the max. I'm sorry, the maximum handicap for an, an adult male is like 36. If I had been honest, it should have been like a 43. It was terrible. I mean, I hadn't broken 100 yet, It was, and I was very frustrated. And so I was out there one day, and uh, I was there with uh, two other buddies, and we were playing a threesome. And so they put a, they put a guy with us in our group. I, I didn't know who he was. I never met the guy. And, the, you know, the guy walks up to our you know the tee box on the first tee, and I take one look at him, and He's got to be, you know, 68, 70 years old, and, and he's walking. And I'm thinking, oh, no, yeah, you know, we're going to – this guy's going to slow us down. And I remember rolling my eyes and kind of prejudging that he, the guy doesn't have any game because he's like <clears throat> 68 or 70. So I get up to the tee box, and, you know, I pull out my big dog driver, you know, and – you know, do my waggle and start thinking, okay, elbow down, head this way, feet this, and – and, you know, and after I get myself into a pretzel, I, you know, try to, you know, take the ball to the back, you know, and then, you know, and, and it, it, wouldn't you know what I, you know, a good 30, 40 yard slice. I mean, it went all of 90 yards, barely carried the lake in front of me and was on the, uh, was on the fairway on the, on the hole that was adjacent to the first hole. And it was really embarrassing. And so when this old guy finally gets up and he gets up to the tee box, I mean, he, I mean, he looked as stiff as mothballs. I mean, I mean, his swing wasn't impressive, but you know what? He swung the ball, he swung the club, hit the ball, and it went dead straight down the center of the fairway, 125 yards, 400 yard hole, and uh, but he was in the middle of the fairway. He was in the short grass. Oh, okay. So when he gets to his ball, he takes his stiff mothball swing and swings his club and. He hits the ball 125 yards, dead center, straight down the fairway. Yeah, and so you you, know, you do the math. I mean, he's got he's got a short approach shot at this point. Kid you not, my second shot, I sliced it again, and and it was a big sky you know slice, and you know I ended up you know right under a tree. You know, in front of the sand trap on the uh, on the right hand side of the uh, the green, and of course, you know, I biffed the shot. I, I ended up getting like a triple bogey on the opening hole. It was it was just really embarrassing. 
Well, the old guy, this you know, the the guy who can barely walk, whose his swing is as stiff as mothballs. He gets up his third shot. He hits the ball, and the the ball lands ten feet in front of the pin and rolls to within six inches of the cup. Tap in par. I was paying attention at this point. Here I got a triple bogey. This guy had a tap in par, and he ain't even got any distance on his swing. I'm thinking, I, what is going on here? So by the end of the day, okay, by the end of 18 holes, I had like a, a 109 as my score. And the old guy, well, he didn't shoot par, but, I mean, he shot, I think it was like a 78 or 80. I, I kid you not. It was like some, I'd never seen a score like that. Uh, let alone from somebody who can't even hit the ball far. And I remember him saying to me, he says, you know what, Chris, stop stressing about it. He says, if you want to get better at golf, play the game. Just play the game. He says, stop thinking about all all this other stuff that's just jumbling up in your head. He says, forget all of that. Just play the game. And you know what? I took that guy's advice, and I started playing the game. I enjoyed the game. And it, it, it just playing, the, just that idea of just play the game it was like the best advice I'd ever received. And within, within a year and a half of that, I was shooting in the 80s myself. It took all the stress off of it. And, uh, I, you know, and I, I remember passing that exact same advice off to a whole slew of guys that I've played golf with that I've never played golf with over the years. Somebody who's new to the game or whatever and stressing out and breaking clubs and cursing and all that kind of stuff when they would have an errant shot. I said, listen, you got a decent swing. You got too many thoughts going on inside of your head. Stop thinking about how to break your swing down and just start figuring out how to play the game. This is a game. It's a game. You're supposed to play the game. And, you know, I, it, I'm telling you, I think church is very similar to this, okay? Instead of trying to figure out the DNA of gospel movements, I, I have an idea. Why don't we do this? Why don't we just simply focus on preaching the gospel to believers and unbelievers, proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, making disciples by teaching the full counsel of the Word of God, and then when we gather together, we make sure that we gather together and share the Lord's Supper together. And let the Holy Spirit work out all the rest. Why don't we, rather than breaking down all this stuff down and trying to figure out how to have a gospel movement I forget. I I'm sorry that I have to put it in these terms. This is I don't mean that this is a game. But why don't we just play the game? Why don't we just get out in the field and play the game? And stop overthinking all of this stuff. Just a thought. Just a thought. All right, we're up on our second break. I'm running a little bit long. Uh, we got a good lecture coming up from Ken Jones of the uh, White Horse Inn on the sufficiency of Scripture for doctrine and life, so you don't want to miss that. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, 
you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, turning for the written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Well into hour number two. We got a good lecture today for our sermon review time. Let's go ahead and cue up the sermon review music. Here we go. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service our sermon today is actually a lecture delivered by ken jones of the white horse inn his contribution regarding um, a recent conference on the sufficiency of scripture the name of his lecture sufficiency of scripture sufficient for doctrine and life Now, as we listen to this lecture, Dr. Jones, uh, is, I don't even know if he's a doctor, but Ken Jones is going to make a, a great point about the fact that those who are against creeds claim that doing so somehow undermines the Scripture, yet ironically it's those people who are really undermining the Scripture and their teaching. 
and you don't believe him or believe me, just listen to the sermon reviews here at Fighting for the Faith. All right, let me kill the music here. There we go. So uh, without any further ado, here is uh, Ken Jones, The Sufficiency of Scripture, Sufficient for Doctrine and Life. Here we go. This morning is sufficient for doctrine and practice, and again, our overall theme is the sufficiency of Scripture. And so what I want to do before we address a few particular portions of Scripture is just by way of overview, when we talk about the subject of sufficient for doctrine and practice, I must note that there is, when you look at the description of what our address is going to be in this section, which is addressing the issue of creeds and confessions as it relates to faith and practice and the sufficiency of Scripture. When we hear those themes tied together, there is an 800-pound gorilla that is really lurking in the background of this topic. And the 800-pound gorilla is the anti-confession, anti-credal form of American Protestantism that began to really spread its wings in the 19th century, even though, as we suggested last night, I don't think that's the genesis of it. In other words, what was expressed in the 19th century that seems to really be the banner of much of evangelical Christianity, even into the present day, is no book but the Bible and no creed but Christ. So since we are dealing with the idea or against the backdrop of an anti-confessional, anti-creedal form of American evangelicalism, what I want to do is begin our discussion with a few observations about our good friend, the 800-pound gorilla, that's in the room. So let's address that first before we look at the specifics of the topic. And the first thing I'll observe is this. The assumption of this movement of no book but the Bible and no creed but Christ, the assumption of this movement was that creeds and confessions undermine both the Protestant doctrine of sola scriptura as well as the sufficiency of Scripture itself. So it worked from the assumption that by churches subscribing to particular creeds and confessions, in doing so, they were undermining the very concept of sola scriptura, and it was, as they said, you know, rather than what these Protestant groups are doing, is moving from a flesh-and-blood pope to a paper pope. So the idea was that I think that sort of lurking in the backdrop of those who were anti-credal and anti-confessional was that the idea of creeds and confessions undermine the very doctrine of sola scriptura as well as the sufficiency of scripture. Many people have misquoted, or not misquoted, but have used the statement of Charles Spurgeon when speaking of apologetics or defending the Scriptures. And he made the observation that the Scriptures are like a lion. You don't need to defend it. Leave it alone. It will defend itself. And some have used that rationale 
to suggest that somehow the church's use of creeds and confessions were a way of saying that the scriptures are not clear enough or that the scriptures are not sufficient enough for what we are to believe and how we are to live. So that's an assumption that's usually associated with this denial of creeds and confessions. The second observation is this. This anti-creedal, anti-confessional strand of Christianity, ironically enough, coincided with the rise of various forms of Pentecostalism with the emphasis on subjective experiences. And the irony, of course, is that the experience, the subjective experience, the personal communication with God, the personal visions, really, in a sense, took the place of the creeds and the confessions. So Christian faith and practice was formulated more in response to the subjective experience in lieu or instead of what the scriptures, what our creeds and confessions understand the scriptures to teach. We'll address this a little more perhaps shortly, and we did touch on it last night, but I find it interesting that it wasn't, and of course we know that when people say no creed, that is itself a creed, but it's even more than that. It's more than a case of people claiming no creed, which is a creed, but this coincided nicely with the denial, the rejection of external authorities and external forms coincided right in uh, the same time with the rise of subjective experiences. So the experience became the litmus test for the authenticating religious claims. Alexis de Tocqueville wrote one of those books that's often quoted but seldom read. But he visited America in 1831, and it was for the official purpose of observing the American prison systems. This was the purpose that he gave the officials for coming, and they agreed that uh, there were some new things that were taking place in the American prison systems that, they could stu- that he could study, he and Beaumont, his traveling companion. In any event, in addition to this, he had a personal reason for wanting to visit the United States, and his personal reason was to study the underpinnings of democracy in this new American republic. Now, de Tocqueville made a number of observations, like I said, that have often been quoted by various sources, but he made a number, number of observations, and one of the observations that he made on the autonomous and independence of the American revolution spirit or revolutionary spirit is this. He says that this revolutionary spirit leads men to mistrust the judgment of one another and to seek the light of truth nowhere but in themselves. Everyone then attempts to be his own sufficient guide and makes it his boast to form his own opinions on all subjects. Now, That's his observation on just the independent, autonomous spirit 
that was part and parcel to the revolutionary era. But what he says there about the idea or the notion that each individual claims himself independent from the authority of someone else's judgment so that he becomes the final voice of approval on all forms of truth, that is not only true in American politics, and perhaps philosophically so, but it certainly seems to be the case again in 1830. This is during the rise of that subjectivism in American Christianity. And it's for this reason that de Tocqueville also notes concerning American Christianity that it's held publicly, but it's usually not defended. And the reason it's not defended is because it's not defined. In other words, his point was that Americans are more concerned, as he observed them, they're more concerned about claiming religion than defining what it is they believe. And since they have no interest in defining it, they are the last ones to defend it. And of course, it, again, all of that coincides with this whole idea of subjective experience. The third observation that we'll make about the 800-pound gorilla in the room is that although the charge against creedal and confessional Christianity was that it undermined the sufficiency of Scripture, the emphasis of subjective mystical religious experiences has proven to be a more active agent in first off obscuring the message of Scripture and then secondly undermining its sufficiency. And I'll repeat that, that although this group, this brand of Christianity charges creedal and confessional Christianity with undermining the sufficiency of Scripture, although that is what they claim, the emphasis on subjective, mystical, religious experiences has proven to be more of an active agent in obscuring the message of the Scriptures and also in undermining its sufficiency. And he's absolutely right. See, which is why, uh, and I think the children or grandchildren of this movement that started in the 19th century, for most of them, and in our generation, and we see this in many circles and in, and in a lot of the surveys that Shane conducts, Many of them really don't know what the primary purpose of the Bible is. They don't know what the message of the Bible is. So whether people think that it's, as Mike has, has so uh, brilliantly pointed out, uh, that whether people reduce the message of, of the Bible to, to helpful hints, or whether it's just a book of morality, the average person that is an offspring of this anti-credal, anti-confessional Christianity really is clueless as to what the central message of the Bible is. I think it was two years ago I was asked to write an article for an online journal and it was how to remain relevant without losing the plot line of Scripture. 
that the church, and that was the challenge of the church, and I, it was in something, some terms similar to that. And I remember asking, I called up the person that asked me to write the article, and I says, well, I think I know what you're asking of me. But I have a deeper question. I have a, a broader question. And my question is this. Do we even know what the plot line of scriptures are? Let's not even talk about the issue of whether how to be relevant, which is something else. I think we think we're relevant when we're not. But the biggest issue, even bigger than the question of relevancy, is understanding the plot line of Scripture. And so the, the interesting thing is that with the rise of tongues, the emphasis on tongues as a particular gift of the Spirit and the continuation of tongues that marked the, the birth of many of the Pentecostal denominations in the 19th century and into the 20th century, or whether it's just a subjective spirit or uh, experience, or as we discussed last night, people falling in love with the, the loose use of the phrase, the Lord told me. Do we really know what the reason God communicates, reveals messages to his people? And many people, that's, you know, I think if we understood the plot line of Scripture, Christians wouldn't feel so comfortable in assuming that God is going to help you find your lost car keys. But see, I think people don't, they think it's a height, the height of spirituality when the Lord tells them which, exactly which house to buy, which car to buy, which person to marry, to speak of God in those revelatory terms. They don't see how that is an obscuring of the Bible's message. Or put it another way, if it's not just the mystical experience, but I think even the moralism that has come out of this brand of Christianity is a missing of the primary message of the Bible. You see, if you ask the average evangelical, what is the primary message of the Bible? We don't realize how pagan we sound when we think that the reason God reveals the Scriptures to us is to get us to act better. That's not the reason he has given us the Scriptures, to get us to act better. I would suggest that really the, the primary purpose of God speaking to his image bearers through the means of the Scriptures, if we want to say, as we looked at John chapter 20 last night, I would say that we are on safer grounds. To say that it is God's purpose that we would believe or trust in the gift of his Son for our salvation. And in believing, this will cause us to respond in love. But the purpose of the Scriptures is not to get us to act better. He's given us a law for that, and that law is even written in our hearts. That's not why God has given us the Scriptures. So evangelicals don't understand how they are obscuring the message or undermining the sufficiency of Scripture when the only thing that we can get out of the Scriptures are rules and regulations of how we can get better or do better or improve our lives, our health, our diets, and 
you know, I mean, all of these things is not to say that these things can't flow out of it, but that's not the primary purpose of Scripture. So, now that being the case, we address the idea that some of the things that are associated with the 800-pound gorilla that's in the room when we talk about Christians or evangelicals who somehow assume that creeds and confessions undermine the sufficiency of the Scriptures or even the authority of the Scriptures, I think those are some of the related subjects on this issue. But what I want to do is, in in the remainder of our time, is look in, in a few different directions. First thing that we want to do is make this point. The Scriptures itself declares that it is sufficient for what we are to believe and how we are to live. Mike read last night, and I'll read again from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses beginning verse 14. He says, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the Scriptures itself says that it is sufficient. Paul says that the Scriptures, the revealed Word of God, is sufficient to build Timothy up in the knowledge or bring him to saving faith and to equip him for every good work. So the Scriptures itself declares that it's sufficient for this. And so the question then becomes, as it relates to our creeds and confessions, are the creeds and confessions additions to the Scripture? Or are they really just helping us to crystallize and better understand that message of the Scriptures? My understanding of the the creeds and the confessions, especially in the confessions, uh, many of them will open with a paragraph that will usually include a statement, things most surely believed by us to be taught in the Scriptures. And so we agree that, so therefore, it's, it's not necessarily naturally or just inconsistent, inherently inconsistent for people, for Christians and churches to adhere to creedal and confessional standards. And it's not inherently inconsistent that in holding to these, that they are somehow undermining both the authority of Scripture and the su- sufficiency of Scripture. In other words, what we're saying here is that our creeds and our confessions are not given as additions to Scripture, but in our creedal formulas and in our confessions and the, the way they are constructed, they, what they actually do is codify and catalog various portions of Scripture, and they take the big picture and break it down in bite-sized pieces. But the whole purpose is not to say the reason we have this, this paragraph on marriage or the reason we have this paragraph on civil government is because the Bible is not clear on this. No, it's giving a consistent and a more coherent and cataloged or categorized presentation 
of the biblical teaching on particular doctrines. Now, when it comes in, and the, the interesting thing is, is it is the church's responsibility, and, and or it is what, what the Bible is actually doing, is telling us what to believe. It's regulating what we believe. We're not just, I love the way James puts it. He says, you believe that there's one God. Well, big deal. The demons believe that and they tremble. So it's not just to know that God is one, but God has given us the Scriptures so that we would know natural revelation tells us about His power and certain other of His invisible attributes, but the Scriptures, Holy Scriptures, reveal what God wants us to know about Himself. You see, we're not free to think whatever our corrupt, fallen hearts and minds are capable of thinking about God, about others, or even about ourselves. You know, we would like to think that we're good people, but it's just not true. So God shows us in His Word that we're not good people. We would like to think God is altogether like us. But the truth is, He isn't. And he told us that he wasn't like us, even in the prophets. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far my thoughts are from your thoughts. We would like to think that God just will show up and he'll whisper in our ear whatever he wants us to know. But he has already told us what he wants to know is codified in his holy scriptures. So therefore, are the scriptures sufficient to tell us what God wants us to know about Himself and what God wants us to know about how we are to live. I think that's what Paul is telling Timothy. Paul is telling Timothy that this is what the Scriptures are supposed to do. This is what they are given to us for. Now, that being the case, we then move to understand the didactic function of the church. The church is an institution that is to teach what the Scriptures, in a codified and systematic way, to teach the message that God has revealed in His Holy Scriptures. In Acts 2.42, we get this phrase that's really fleshed out in other portions of the New Testament. And they continued steadfastly in the Apostles' doctrine. They continued steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine. Well, the question would be, what is the Apostles' Doctrine? And where did they get it from? Well, the Apostles' Doctrine is the teachings that they had received from Christ. We see it in Luke 24. We see it even in the opening verses of the book of Acts, where the Lord, in His 40 days post after His resurrection prior to His ascension, opened up the Scriptures and showed them how all of these things spoke of Him. And so what do we see, therefore, in the immediate aftermath? On the day of Pentecost, we see Peter interpreting not only Psalm 16, but Psalms 110, and even the prophecies of Joel through the person and work of Christ. I mean, that's what we see. We see, and that is the Apostles' Doctrine. Any good Jew who had been raised in the synagogues would have been familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures. This is the constant argument or the, the tension between Jesus and the religious leaders during the course of His earthly ministry. They searched the Scriptures because they knew the Scriptures. 
What did they do when they wanted to put Jesus in a bad light in the presence of the multitudes? They would get one of their experts in the law and try to find some fine point of the law to trip him up. Why? Because they knew the law. But what they didn't know, they didn't see Jesus as the subject of all of the Scriptures. Again, we see in Acts, Acts chapter 8, when Philip sees the Ethiopian eunuch. And Isaiah 53, he's reading from the Scriptures. And what does the, the eunuch ask? And we would love for people to ask this question. It would make evangelism so much easier if we just walk down the street and people are reading the Scriptures wondering who it's about. Although I'm not sure that even in contemporary Christianity we would be able to give the right answer. You see, here's what the Ethiopian eunuch was doing. He was reading Isaiah 53, and he says, well, I'm just perplexed. Who is the writer speaking about? Is he speaking about himself, or is he speaking of someone else? And Philip says, oh, oh, I'm glad you asked. And he began, what does he do? He takes the pattern that Jesus had taught the disciples in those 40 days after his resurrection, and it was one of those aha experiences. And even Philip was able to interpret Isaiah 53 through the personal work of Christ. So yes, the, the Scriptures do tell us what to believe. And we find even in the book of Jude, we are told to earnestly contend for the faith. Not for the gift of faith. But used in that sense, it means the body of truth that has been embraced and passed on and proclaimed. <laughs> yep, that's exactly right. And so when Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 and following, which we cited last night, that he says this is how we are to conduct ourselves in the church of God, which he says is the pillar and the ground of truth. And what does he do after he makes that statement? He says, well, here's that truth. Great is the mystery of godliness. That God was manifest in the flesh and seen among men. And then he goes on. And what is he doing? He's interpreting that truth through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Other creedal formulas that we see in the New Testament, again, focus on the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the didactic function of the church is to proclaim the sufficiency of Scripture, which begins with the doctrines of the apostles. And that's why, or that's what's meant in our creeds when we speak of the holy apostolic church. That's what an apostolic church is, by the way. Don't let the denomination fool you. The apostolic church is a church that is built on the doctrines of the apostles. Now, there is an extended portion of Scripture, I think, that lays out this didactic function, really in a, in a categorical sort of way, but in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, and uh, I'll begin in verse 11. Paul says this, And he himself gave some to be apostles, and some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man to the measure of the stature 
of the fullness of Christ. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro by and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened and being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But... You have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Now, really throughout the rest of the chapter, what Paul is admonishing, in fact, in the very next verse, he tells them to take off the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That, and that you may put on the new man which is created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, the point of this passage and the reason we make reference to it is because what takes place is actually Paul has given us the good news of the gospel in the first three chapters. So the purpose of the, the scriptures is to give us that gospel. And now the didactic purpose of the church is to build the saints up in the knowledge of the person of Christ and of who we are in Christ. And so that's right. Oh man, I I got to pause there for a second. People think the purpose of the church is to entertain goats or to um, tell uh, unbel- you know to demonstrate to unbelievers that we care about their uh, that you know Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and we're going to strip mine the Bible so that they can understand principles that will make their lives better, and then we can prove that we care about them uh, by doing that. That's not the purpose of church. It's the building up of the saints. That's why the gifts of the Spirit are given for the edification of the body of Christ. And if you have a teaching gift, it's to be used in the church to build people up in the scriptures and point them to Christ to build them up in the faith. This whole self-feeder thing that the the, uh, the seeker-driven, purpose-driven guys keep whining about, it's not found in the Bible. So it does tell us what to believe, and that's why he speaks of the faith, built up in the faith, and then he also includes for this reason, so that you wouldn't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And what's the end result of that? Not walking so that you can be saved, but because you are saved, to not walk like the rest of the Gentiles walk. You see, the didactic function of the church is to proclaim the sufficiency of the Scriptures to save and the sufficiency of the Scriptures for how we are to live. 
So what then is the function of our creeds and our confessions? To codify and to crystallize the teaching of the church as it is passed on in the doctrines of the apostles. Are the scriptures sufficient alone to save us and to conform us to the image of Christ? I think the answer of the creeds and the confessions is yes. And the answer of the New Testament church is yes. And the answer of the Apostle Paul is yes. Amen. Amen. Oh, 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 great lecture. Succinct and to the point. Uh, exactly. Yep, 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 yep. Like it a lot. It's true. We are to be about the business of preaching the word, hearing the word in church. Yep. All right. What'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. Before I give you my email address again, I need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. If you don't already partner with us financially, well, you need to uh, you need to remedy that because this is a partnership. We do our part, and then you support us financially and make it possible for us to continue to do what we do and to expand our reach here at Fighting for the Faith. And so the way you partner with us, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. You'll see two friendly yellow buttons there. One says donate. The other says join our crew. Pick one of them. And you know, when you join our crew, it, it's, it may not seem like a lot of money. It's, you're signing up to automatically contribute you know, $6.95 every month. I mean, we're talking about a movie ticket a month, is, you know, if you were to compare it. it it's, it's a couple of Vente mocha, Mochas at Starbucks. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. But it may not seem like a lot to you, but it really does. It is a lot to us because as the number of our crew members increase, what it does is it levels out our giving on a month-to-month basis so that we can make good financial decisions, pay all of our bills, and strategically grow our reach and and you know here at Fighting for the Faith. So again, if you if you're not already partnering with with us that way please consider doing so, or you can make a uh, one-time contribution by clicking on the donate button or make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. You can email me, my email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.